Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require signs, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. something to look forward to. All right, Daniel 9, let's read verses 24 through 27, just to remind ourselves of the context, and then we'll take a look at more of this. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgressions and to make an end, to, uh, to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks, and threescore and two weeks the street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times, and after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the, the, the end of the war, desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease and for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. That is Daniel 9. So Lord willing, we'll finish this chapter today and uh, in the next few weeks. So we've got three weeks left, just enough time. So of course, we've got a break next week, and then after that, we'll come back right at the end of the month. Okay, 70 weeks, it literally means 70 seventies, <laughs> or 70 sevens. Sorry, that would be a lot more than 490 days, but 70 sevens. 
It's, it's like a multiplication equation. And, um, but at least there's no A times X equals Q, what's the answer? That's nothing, it means nothing. It's a bunch of letters, you can't add and multiply letters. Who, who thought of that? What were you smoking? <laughs> I can handle seven 70s, or, or I even did it, I did it backwards again. Let's do this, let's try this one more time. I guess it's about the same, but seven 70s, right? So it's, it's literally seven times 70. Is, is what it's saying, which will bring you up to 490, and that's going to equal in years. And we're going to talk about that today in a little more detail. Actually, we're going to talk about it right now in a little more detail. So the use of days and years in this interchangeable fashion only takes place when speaking of what two things? Prophecy. What else? There's two things. We only talk about days and, and as years related to two things, judgment, prophecy and judgment. All right, so in every context where God does this, look at Numbers 14. Um, somebody's being judged or God is bringing out some new prophetic event. And sometimes it's a combination of both. Numbers 14, we'll read verses 26 through 35. Verse 26. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation? <laughs> That's his own people. So when somebody tells you, God just loves you, uh, you better be careful. <laughs> these, are, these are his people, and he's, he's asking, How long I got to put up with these evil, rotten people? which murmur against me, I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel, which they murmur against me. Say unto them, as truly as I live, saith the Lord, as ye have spoken in mine ears, so will I do to you. Your carcass shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you, according to your whole number, from twenty years old and upward, which have murmured against me, doubtless ye shall not come into the land, Concerning which, uh, concerning which I swear to, uh, to, to make you dwell therein, save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, which ye said should be prey, them will I bring in, and they shall know the land which ye have despised. But as for you, your carcasses, they shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall wander in the wilderness forty years. Why 40 years? All right, so this is, this is before, we, before we continue reading, just, just, to, just to help you think through this with me, what is this judgment in reference to? What just happened between, what's that? Yeah, they sent, they sent 10 men to spy out the land, and they come back with this report saying, there's giants in there. I'm not going in there. God's trying to kill us. And of course, two of them come back and say, I don't care who's in there. If God's on our side, we can go do it. And God, it, it makes God angry. So he named the two men. He said, they're, they, they're going in. But the rest of you, you're going to die in this wilderness. And you're going to wander in wilderness for 40 years. 
how long were these men gone? 40 days. See the connection? Now you're going to wander in the wilderness 40 years. But, he, but it, it goes further, and the Lord, Lord breaks it down for us. So look back at... Um, uh, back to verse 43, and your children shall wander in the wilderness 40 years and bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness after the number of the days in which you searched the land, even 40 days each day for a year shall be your iniquities, even 40 years and you shall know my breach of promise. I, the Lord, have said, I will surely do it unto all, all this evil congregation that are gathered together against me in this wilderness. They shall be consumed, and there, there they shall die. All right, so that's God's promise, and this is, of course, this is not prophetic. This is judgment. He is judging them. These men came back with an evil report. They were gone 40 days. He said, you got 40 years to wander in the wilderness. I, I want all of you, I want all of you dead. You're not going into the promised land, except for the ones who came back and, and had their trust in me, not in what they saw. So, I mean, I'm thankful I was not there. <laughs> I mean, who, who, who comes back and says, all right, let's make a plan to, to defeat these giants and take their land? Is it that unreasonable that they came back and said, do you know what's in there? <laughs> you know who's waiting over there? Right, but Joshua, Caleb, they came back and they said, if God's on our side, we can do it. And God said, okay, you two can go in the land, but the rest of you, you're going to wander literally. They literally wandered in a circle 40 years in the wilderness. Walking around the same spot, just <laughs> haven't we been here before? I don't, I don't know. Maybe ten years ago. I don't know. <laughs> it's like <laughs> um, I don't know. Israel did succumb to this judgment. They wandered in the wilderness, just as God said, forty years. And now, here's the equation, though: it's forty years in exchange for forty days, one year for each day. Right, so do you see how that relates to Daniel 9? If you've got, all right, so we've got one week left. One week. How many days are in a week? So how many years does that equal? Seven years. Does that make sense? All right, so if, you, if, if 69 of the 70 weeks, all right, so we've got 70 weeks, how many days is that? Four hundred and ninety days. All right, and if we put that on the prophetic and judgment scale, which in Daniel nine, that's what's happening. They are both being judged, and it is prophecy. It's it's the two of them. So if we break that down into into God's scale, that's going to come out to four hundred and ninety years. All right, so that's that's where all this is coming from. Look at Ezekiel 4, and we'll see it, something similar to it.
baby, you look like your brain's about to start smoking. Ezekiel 4, and we'll read verses 4 through 6. Verse 4, Lie thou also upon my left side, and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it, according to the number of the days that thou shalt lie upon it, thou shalt bear their iniquity. For I have laid upon thee the years of their iniquity according to the number of days. 390 days, so shalt thou, thou bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. So Ezekiel is going to have to lay there. Remember, at this point, where is he at this point? Who remembers? Anybody? Somebody guess. He's where? He's in captivity. He's in Babylon. So you got these Babylonians walking by. You got Jews walking by. Like, what are you doing? Just <laughs> laying on the ground. And God said, 390 days, you're going to lay on your side to represent 390 years in terms of judgment. Right? So it's a day for a year. That's, that's the key. That's, the, that's where all this is coming from. That's why we break it down. We, we, we break it out from days to years. In judgment and in prophecy, according to the context, a day can represent a year. Now, in Daniel 9, we have 70 weeks. So I want to write this. Does everybody have this that needs it or wants it? Yeah? Okay. I'm going to write this out for you again so you can see it, especially in in light of what we just looked at. So we've got 70 weeks. We're going to write out a couple of uh, scales or timelines. or got a couple of things to write out today that, that I want to show you guys. So we've got 70 weeks. And... Um, 70 weeks is, is equivalent to 490 uh, days. Hold on, let me find my spot here. It's equal to 490 days in prophetic judgment. And of course, we get that because of 70 weeks. If, if you have 70 weeks and there's seven days in a week, there's going to be seven times seven, which equals 490 Days and of course that equals 490 years. There's seven days in a week. If there's 70 weeks, then you multiply the seven days times the number of weeks. That gives you the total number of days. And since it's a day for a year, that gives you also the total number of years. Everybody see that? I'll be quiet on this. On this. What is it, Bulai? On this Monday. All right, so in prophet, prophetic or judgment terms, is 490 years. And then it's broken into three parts. Who remembers what they are? Miss Monica? What's the first one? Huh? Seven weeks. So, number one, you have seven weeks. So, what would this equal? Hmm? What? 
49 years. Why? So if it's seven weeks, each week has seven days. So it's going to be seven times seven, which equals 49 days, which also equals what? 49 years. Everybody following that so far? Good. All right. What was number two? Again? 62 weeks. 62 weeks. And then how many, year, how many days is that? No, that's the total. That's the total of 69. 434. All right, so it'd be seven, the number of days in a week, times 62, which is going to come out to 434 days or 434 years. Now, if we were to add this together, 49 plus 434, what would we come up with? 483 days, which is what? 483 years or 69 weeks. Everybody followed that so far? Everybody got that square in their mind? Miss Monica? Looking puzzled. Just a uh, okay. All right. This is your chance. So, if 69 weeks have passed, what's left? One week, number three. One week, which is what? Seven, well, seven days, which equals seven years. All right, and then total, that kind of brings us to 70 weeks, which are determined upon whose people? Daniel's people, which is the church. Israel. Good. It, it is Israel. All right, so is that, does that make sense to everybody? Everybody seeing where that comes from? Why, we, why we're going back and forth between days and years? The, the prophetic and judgment attachment to it all? That, that's the scale that God gave us. That's how this is being determined. And then, and then we know, we further know that it's years because God said a command will be given. That command is going to be to, to rebuild. All right, then once it's rebuilt, then Messiah will come, and then Messiah will be cut off, and, and, and all these things are going to happen. I mean, this, this happened in, in a matter of 483 years, a large time span that, in which all of this happened. So it, it, fits the, it fits the years, it fits the time frame that God gave us. It fits it very well. Praise the Lord for it. All right, now, we talked about the starting point for the 70 weeks, uh, but I, I want you to see it today. Uh, there, were, there were four decrees from four different Persian kings, right? Only one of them matches what God said in Daniel 9. Does everybody have this? All right, take your time. 
while we're waiting, and, and you take your time and get it written down, uh, turn to Ezra chapter 1. And uh, we already looked at a few of these, but we're going to look at all four this evening. Good? Everybody good? We want to follow these commands to demonstrate why it's it's one over, you know versus another and uh, and it gives us a biblical starting point for when the when the 70 weeks begin number 1 is Ezra 1 1 through 4 this is Cyrus let's read verses 1 through 4 I know we've read it probably 100 times now the past two semesters, but we'll stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Verse 1, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him an house, that's key. What was Cyrus supposed to build? A house, not a city, right? All right, let's continue. At Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem, and whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place uh, help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts beside the free will offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. All right, so Cyrus was instructed, send my people back to rebuild the temple. Build the temple. Not the city, not the walls, not the streets. You go rebuild the temple. Hold, hold your place in Ezra. Look at Isaiah 44. And we'll see hundreds of years before Cyrus gave this decree what God had to say about it. And I know we've read this a number of times also, but once again, it's good for us to see it anew. Isaiah 44. Where am I? Isaiah 59. And uh, we'll read verse 28. That, that saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. All right, so th this gives us a clear indication that the Persians, under, under Persian reign, the city's going to be rebuilt, but Cyrus said go back and build the temple. And, and that's a part of this decree. And that was, that was the only decree that he gave. Now, when, when he gave the decree, he sent back, uh, so here we'll put uh, Isaiah 44, 28. Is that what it was? Now we're going to look at Ezra 2. And um, in Ezra 2, he sent back Zerubbabel, and Jeshua and 50,000 around, give or take, 50,000 captives went with them in, in the first 
um, in the first group of people who went. Um, so we're going to read, let's read Ezra 2, verses 64 through 65. Verse 64, the whole congregation together was 40 and 2,303 score beside their servants and their maids, of whom there were 7,337, and there were among them 200 singing men and singing women. It's, in those days, it was probably good to travel with singing men and singing women. <laughs> you just surround us and sing. It's like having your own radio, you know, just change the dial when you want them to change the song. <laughs> so uh, this is the, the first 50,000 or so people who are going back together. And for the most part, that's all that went. Out of who knows how many have settled in Babylon and still in Babylon and stayed in Babylon. We know Daniel stayed. Um, we don't know what happened to the other three who were with them. As far as we know, they also stayed. But of course, they're old men at this point. I mean, they're in their 80s and 90s at this point. So uh, Zerubbabel and Jeshua uh, are, are sent back, Zerubbabel, Ezra, uh, Cyrus makes Zerubbabel the governor and sends them back, Jeshua's the high priest, and they make their return. Now, but this command given by Cyrus is limited to the temple. Now look at Ezra 6, verse 16. Number two is... Ezra 6, 1 through 12, this is going to be Darius, right? So he's, he's going to make his decree to let them complete the work on the temple. Uh, of course, the, the enemies of Judah were trying to prevent them. Uh, verses 1 through 12, then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in the house of the rolls where the treasures were laid up in Babylon. And there was found at Akmetha, in the palace that is in the province of the Medes, a roll. And therein was a record thus written, in the first year of Cyrus the king, the same Cyrus the king made a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the house be builded, the place where they offered sacrifice, and let the foundations thereof be strongly laid, the height thereof, threescore cubits, and the breadth thereof, uh, threescore cubits, which with three rows of great stones and a row of new timber, and let the, the expenses be given out of the king's house. That's like President Museveni calling and saying, hey, the government's going to buy you a new building. <laughs> How much money do you need? But the king, that's the king saying, look, whatever it costs, it's coming out of my expenses. I'm paying for it. You just build the house. Verse 5, And also let the golden and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took forth out of the temple, which is at Jerusalem and brought unto Babylon, be restored and brought again unto the temple, which is at Jerusalem, everyone that, uh, to his place and place them in the house of God. Now, therefore, Tatnai, governor beyond the river and Shethar Bosnai and your companions and uh, the Afarsakites, the um, which are beyond the river, be ye far from thence. Let the work of this house of God alone, let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God in his place. Moreover, I make a decree that you shall do to the elders of the Jews, uh, of, of the Jews for the building of the house of God, 
that the king's goods, even of the tribute beyond the river, forthwith expenses be given unto these men, that they be not hindered, and that which, and that which they ha have need of, both young bullocks and rams and lambs, and uh, for the burnt offerings for the God of heaven, uh, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the appointment of the priests, which are at Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day without fail, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet savors unto the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and of his sons. Also, I have made a decree that whosoever shall alter this word, let timber be pulled down from his house and being set up, let him be hanged thereon and let his house be made a dunghill <laughs> for this. And the God uh, and the and the God that hath caused his name to dwell there, destroy all kings and people that shall put to their hand to alter and to destroy this house of God, which is at Jerusalem. I, Darius, have made a decree. Let it be done with speed. All right. Now, again, we, we talked about it already, but it's very curious to me that this man writes this letter. He knows what, what they need to build the house. He knows what the priests need in order to do their sacrifice and to make their offerings. Where did he get all that knowledge? You had to guess who would it be, Daniel. Daniel? Who else would tell him all this stuff? How did he, how does he know to write this and say, "Look, they're going to need bullocks, they're going to need rams, they, they need you know the, the salt, the, the the wheat, the wine, they need all this stuff in order for their priests to do what they need to do for the God of Heaven." Who would tell him that? Right? Now, when you trace back the 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 Persians' historical interaction with uh, many of many of the people from Judah, where you have you know, you have Mordecai, Mordecai, you know, save Artaxerxes' life. Uh, then you have Daniel, who had this close relationship with, uh, with, with uh, Darius and, and Cyrus and, and all the kings that he worked for. So there seems to be this long history of relationships between Judah and, and, um, and, and these Persian kings. And so when this letter gets to Darius saying, hey, these people are trying to build this temple. Do you want us to stop them? He's like, No. <laughs> You're going to stay out of their way. You're going to pay for it. And if I find out you bother them, I'm going to, I'm going to rip your house down, hang you there, and turn it into a dunghill. And so um, that, those are awfully heated words for, for an insignificant temple that has nothing to do with him or, or his people. Uh, so it's, it's incredible. All right, now, but his decree, all it did was facilitate... Building what? The temple. That's it. Nothing about the city. Nothing about the roads. Nothing about the walls. Nothing about the, the gates. Um, all, it, all it did was permit them to continue building the house. All right, so then we have a third decree. This is also going to be our good friend Ezra the Ready Scribe. It's going to be in chapter 7, 11 through 22. This is going to be Artax Xerxes. All right, now, again, when you, when you try to follow this historically, they try and tell you which Artaxerxes this was uh, versus the one that, that Nehemiah talked to and... Uh, which Darius it was versus 
you know, which Darius was in Daniel 5 and which Darius was in Daniel 9 and which Darius is in Haggai chapter 1. And um, none, no one, none of them can present to me with enough confidence to, make, to help me believe it. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's kind of a mess. Uh, so I just, I just, you know, ignorance is bliss and I lump them all together because it seems to fit the biblical narrative. I don't have any reason not to. Um, now, when the historical record becomes more clear, I'm happy to correct that. Until then, I, I just don't worry about it. Uh, Ezra 7, verses 11 through 22. Now, this is the copy of the letter that the king Artaxerxes gave unto Ezra, the priest, the scribe, even a scribe of the words of the, of the commandment of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. All right, now, here's what we need to see out of this. Um, what, what did Ezra receive? A letter. And that letter equaled the king's de decree. Once, once he got that letter and it was put in writing, remember Cyrus, he made his decree and put it in writing. So the, the, just because you don't have a king standing and making a verbal decree doesn't mean this is not a decree. It absolutely is. You better do it. <laughs> in fact, it's probably more binding because it's in writing. You could say, well, I wasn't there to hear what you said. Well, okay, well, here's what I have to say. Go do it. But once you have it in writing, uh, you better do it and obey it, or you, the house end up becoming a dunghill or something. Um, so back to verse 12. Artaxerxes, king of kings, unto Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace, and at such a time, I make a decree that all they of the people of Israel and of, this, uh, of his priests and Levites in my realm, which are minded of their own free will to go up to Jerusalem, go with thee. Now, it sounded like he was going to say, all of you got to go. But he threw in some little details there, if you want to. <laughs> Why wouldn't they want to go back? Same reason Christians get comfortable in the world. Settle down there and, well, you know, it's not so bad here right now. Yeah, but the Lord needs you to, needs, needs you to be faithful. Well, I, you know, I love the Lord. <laughs> Do you? Because <laughs> he said to forsake the world. He said love not the world. Well, I wouldn't say I love it. It's just, you know, I've just gotten comfortable here. It looks like the entire mass of Christians, that's exactly where they are. Uh, we're, we're just kind of comfortable here. You little fanatics go over there and, you know, do, do we, we, we'll, we'll send you some money. <laughs> but I'm not going. I'm staying here. And so here you have the king writing again. Everybody had the chance to leave when Cyrus made his decree. And, and so Zerubbabel and Joshua go back and 50,000 people go. Out of who knows how many. I mean, we're talking large numbers staying in Babylon. It's a shame. Verse 14, For as much as thou art sent of the king and of his seven counselors to, to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem, according to the law of thy God, which is in thine hand, and to carry the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered unto the God of Israel, whose habitation is in Jerusalem, and all the silver and gold that thou canst find in all the province of Babylon, with the freewill offering of the people and of the priests, 
offering willingly for the house of their God, which is in Jerusalem. See, see what he just said? I know you're, you're probably not going to go back, but you need to give them money so they can go do what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> Wherever you can find the money, take it from them and take it back and do what you need to do in Jerusalem. That, that's, that's sad. I mean, it's a blessing this king is going to make this available to them and that, that, that it should not hinder what's going on in Jerusalem, though they, they do end up being very hindered. <laughs> they end up stopping the work on the temple. But it, it's, it's very sad that this king is writing this decree again, and, and even, even again, only a small number of people are going to go back with him. It's not the, the, the large amount of people that could go or that should go. And, and so the king gives them at least an opportunity, at least throw some money at these people so that you don't feel bad about not going and doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're going to abandon your brethren and, and, and not help them. And so uh, he said, all the gold you can find, you know, take it. Verse 17, that thou mayest uh, buy speedily with this money bullocks, rams, lambs with their meat offerings and their drink offerings, and offer them upon the altar of the house of your God, which is in Jerusalem. And whatsoever shall seem good to thee and to thy brethren to do with the, the, the rest of the silver and of the gold, that do after the will of your God. So whatever you want to do with the money, as long as your God approves of it, go for it. Verse 19, the vessels also that are given, given thee for the service of the house of thy God, those deliver thou before the God of Jerusalem, and whatsoever more shall be needful for the house of thy God, which thou shalt have occasion to bestow, bestow it out of the king's treasure house. And I, even I, Artaxerxes, the king, do make a decree to all the treasurers which are beyond the river, and that whatsoever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, shall require of you, it be done speedily. Unto an hundred talents of silver, and to an hundred measures of wheat, and to an hundred baths of wine, and to an hundred baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Just give him all the salt, however much he needs. All right, so again, he, Ezra's being sent back, and he's got this letter from the, from the king, but it further facilitates the temple. There's nothing so far about rebuilding the city, or the walls, or the streets. Um, when Ezra went back, he took a second group of captives with him. Look at Ezra 8. We'll read some of it real fast. Verses 1 through 14. Um, we'll read through it real quick. Verse 1. These are now the chief of their fathers, and this is the genealogy of them that went up with me from Babylon in the reign of Artaxerxes the king. Of the sons of Phinehas, uh, Gershom, and the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, and the sons of David, Hattush, one of the sons of Shechaniah, of the sons of Perosh, Zechariah, and with, with him were reckoned by genealogy the males in hundred and, and fifty. Uh, of the sons of uh, Pahath Moab, Elio, uh, Eli Hoanai, that's a good name. Benjamin likes that name. Somebody should try it out. The son of uh, Zerahiah. These Bibles drive me crazy when they break up the names and put hash marks over them. It's hard enough to read. And then when you space it all out and, and put it on two lines, it's like, oh, there's more to that. 
And with him, 200 males of the sons of Shechaniah, the, the son of Jehaziel, uh, and with, with him, uh, 300 males. And so he goes on and on through this to down to verse 14, and he names how many people. It's not that many. I mean, it's, it's maybe a couple thousand that go back with him, this, this second group of captives who go back. So that gives you a, just an idea of how many people actually returned. You know, and th- this, is, this is three opportunities to return, and we're at, what, maybe 60,000 people so far, maybe? <laughs> That's not much to go back and rebuild the entire city of Jerusalem. All right, so then we have a fourth decree. Uh, this is the one we read the other day. We'll read it again real, real quick. This is Nehemiah 2, and this is going to be Artaxerxes again. Now, is it the same Artaxerxes? I don't know. If you ask the men who write the historical records, they say no. But then they say, but we don't know. <laughs> so why'd you say it's not? Well, we don't think it is. We think this is Artaxerxes the first, and this is Artaxerxes Logomenus. Well, why do you think that? We don't know. <laughs> okay? Uh, I'm just going to call him Artaxerxes, because God didn't give us any other name to attach to it or any other monikers to add to it in the Bible. I'm just going to leave it as it is. All right, so verses 1 through 8, where are we at? Right here. 1 through 8, and uh, this is... The decree to go back and build the city. So look at Nehemiah chapter 2. Verse 1. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick, this is nothing else but sorrow of heart, that I was very sore afraid, and said unto the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Then the king said unto me, y'all should have acted right, and God wouldn't have had that done to you. (laughs) No, the king was nice. Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. And that's the key. Nehemiah's request is to go back and build the city. All right, now it took... 52 days to build the walls. But it's estimated it took about 12 years to build the city. Now, when Nehemiah went back, all right, so Zerubbabel and Joshua go back, they didn't build the city. They started on the temple, which is what they were supposed to do. They got the altar built, they got the foundation laid, and then they stopped. And they went and built their own houses. They didn't care about anything else. All right? Then Ezra, in, in Ezra's day, um, they began rebuilding the temple again. Their adversaries come back, but this time they refuse to quit. 
Darius sends a, a letter saying, no, you leave them alone, let them build, and you pay for it. <laughs> um, then, again, Ezra is finally making his way to Jerusalem, and he wants to go and help restore worship at the temple. And so Artaxerxes says, here, take what you need. Go back and reestablish worship at the temple. So Ezra goes back, and he does that. Then we get to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah says, you don't have a city. You don't have walls. You don't have a gate. You don't have roads. You don't, you're, 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 a, you're a vulnerable mess right now, and it needs to be fixed. So Nehemiah gets permission to go back and rebuild the actual city, and this is the decree that we hold to as the start of the 70 weeks. That's when it began. If we take God at his word, and I think we should. Now, listen to this. All right, so let's, let me, let me find where we need to pick up and read that. Um, look at, let's start in verse 4. Let's read this again real fast. Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven and said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, uh, the queen also sitting by him, For how, how long shall thy journey be, and when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set a time. Moreover, I said unto the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me to build go- uh, uh, me to the governors beyond the river, and uh, that they may convey me over and, uh, till I come into Judah, verse 8, and a letter to Asaph was given for timber and to make beams for the gates in the palace and um, appertain to the house and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God. Now, he said, I want to go build the city. And then this last verse, he says, for the walls and for the gates and, and all these things. So when Nehemiah goes back, his plan is to build the walls and to build the city, right? Based on what we've read. Now come back to Daniel 9. Daniel 9 and verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. Now listen to the description. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. That is a great description of the book of Nehemiah. They rebuilt that wall in troublous times. The reason Darius had to send that decree is because they were in trouble. Darius told those men, leave them alone, and they didn't leave them alone. They, 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 they got the temple done. They left them alone long enough to build the temple, but not long after that, you got one of these men, he's got his own room in the temple, <laughs> So Nehemiah comes and he's like, what's this doing here? Get it out. And rips it out and throws it out. And then Nehemiah cleanses the temple. And so they start rebuilding the walls. They don't sleep. They keep their clothes on. He says, we only took our clothes off long enough to take a bath. And we put them right back on and got right back to work or sat watch. Because they were constantly being attacked. Their enemies were telling them, we're going to come kill you. We're going to come tear down what you're doing. So it got to where they had to, they had to stay awake for 52 days, day and night, guarding the wall or building the wall. 
Now, how many of you would have stayed there and participated or quit and left? They were going to build that wall. They were going to build that city. But, but here, here's the key. They were only going to do it if there was a man there willing to push them. Nehemiah leaves for a few days, goes back to Babylon, and when he returns, the whole place is a mess, and he has to reorder everything again. Because the person who was there, who kept it, who held it all together, who said, no, I don't care what, I don't care what they say, I don't care what they say. Many times they came to Nehemiah and said, look, we've heard these rumors about you. I don't care. Well, we're going to go tell the king. Go tell him. Go ahead. Let me know what he says. Well, you know, it might get you in trouble. I don't care. I'm not coming off this wall. You can say what you want. You can do what you want. You can, you can beg all you want. You can send letters. You can spread rumors. I'm not coming off this wall. Not until it's done. And then I'm going to go start on something else. We're not just going to sit around and say, oh, well, the wall's done. I guess we can, take, we can go on vacation now. No, we got a city to build. We, there's so much that needs to be done. We don't have time to sit around and do nothing. And that was Nehemiah's mentality. And as long as Nehemiah was there, that was Judah's mentality. As soon as Nehemiah leaves, all goes out the window. So what, what Christianity needs are some young men and women who are just going to do right even when it's hard because it's what pleases God. And if one or two of you will do that, then everybody else will do it. As soon as, as, soon as one or two of you stop, well, then the people around you are going to say, well, I guess we can take a break now. I guess we can quit now. And, and we can't afford that. We can't have that. Nehemiah is noted for his efforts on the wall and laboring in troublous times. That's, exactly, that's a perfect description of the book of Nehemiah. When I was in Rwanda a couple months ago, in two three-hour sessions, I taught through the entire book of Nehemiah. <laughs> there are entire chapters in Nehemiah is nothing but names. And you finish reading it, it's like your tongue just falls out of its mouth. Like, <laughs> it's like, <what? laughs> and I was determined to read all those names. I was like, oh, why did I get myself into this? I could just skip over all this, but... This doesn't seem right. It's the Word of God. You've got to read it. If you're going to teach the whole counsel of God, you've got to read even all those names. I just praise God it wasn't First Chronicles. <laughs> Nine chapters of names. <laughs> so it's an incredible book. Nehemiah is an incredible man. And, and the, the theme of the, that conference down there was on leadership. But it doesn't get any better than, than Nehemiah and what he did. As long as Nehemiah was leading, those people were following. It's exactly the same. I've preached it here in Joshua. Look at Joshua real fast. Some of you have already seen it and already heard it, but it's worth seeing again. Just keep it in your mind. Look at Joshua chapter 1 real fast. In verse 1, Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses ministered. That's, in, that's incredible to me. So here, here you have a young man who said, God is using Moses. I'm following him. Whatever he needs, 
in, in the Bible or, or just the, the definition of the word minister, it means, it doesn't mean, we, we often say the word minister means servant. It means chief servant. It means you excel at being a servant. Like when it, if you're in a group of servants, they'd say he's the chief. <laughs> he, is so, he is such a servant at, at whatever it is he's doing that he has elevated himself in, 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 in a form of, of greatness in, the terms, in terms of being a servant. Right? So the Bible just said Moses was the servant of the Lord, but Joshua is serving Moses. He's, he's Moses' best servant, his chief servant, right? Which is incredible. All right, now, Moses is dead. So what's God going to do? Well, look at verse 2. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give uh, to them, even to the children of Israel. The Lord said, all right, Moses is dead. Who's going to carry on the work? How about the one who's faithfully served Moses? You, Joshua, you're next. I can trust you because I saw how you served Moses. If you can't get behind somebody and let them teach you and guide you and lead you and and you just be a servant to them and a help to them, well, then when that person's gone and and their job is over, who's God going to turn to? He's got to start all over or find somebody. And, and, and there's a massive lack in this. You know how many churches in America right now have no pastor after their pastor of 10, 20, or 30 years left or died or got sick or had to quit for whatever reason, valid or invalid, and they have nobody to follow him? Nobody. That is a shame. That is not what a pastor is supposed to do. That is not what a missionary is supposed to do. That's not what you're supposed to do. If you have a ministry in this church, you're supposed to be actively teaching somebody to do what you're doing. So if the the, the day comes that you get sent away or you get hurt or get sick or quit or whatever, somebody can step right up and take over what you've been doing. If you don't have servants who are following the servant then no, it's, that, that chain's going to be broken. Now, now look at Joshua 24. This has nothing to do with our lesson. It's just interesting. Joshua 24, look at verse 29. And it came to pass after these things that Joshua the son of Nun, what does that say? He's not Moses' servant anymore. Now he's a servant of the Lord. That's what I want God to say about me at the end of my life. Now, but, but, but I want you to get the full breath of this. Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. Now, listen to this. And they buried him uh, in the border of his inheritance in uh, Timnasera, which is in the Mount Ephraim on the north side of the hill Gash, verse, verse 31. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that overlived Joshua and which had known all the works of the Lord that he had done for Israel. If there is a servant of the Lord, the people will follow him, and they will keep serving the Lord. What's the next book of the Bible? What happened?
Every man did that which was right in his own eyes, and there is no king in Israel. There are no servants. God has to start raising up judges because there's nobody, literally nobody, faithful enough to serve God and lead the people. And it just falls apart and becomes a mess. Then they start whining, well, we want a king. (laughs) No, you don't. Yes, we do. Okay, here he is. But we don't want him. (laughs) You said you wanted a king. Here he is. And, And it just becomes more and more of a mess from there. So Nehemiah is a great example of that. When Nehemiah, the servant of God, when the man who says, I don't care what the crowd is doing, I don't care what the country is doing, I don't care what Babylon is doing, I don't care what your rumors are, I don't care what pressure you put on me, God wants these walls built, and I'm going to make sure they get built. Everybody said, I'm just going to get behind him and follow him wherever he says to go. You need me to do something? Okay, I'll do it. Because that's what people are. There are not many leaders. And so those of you who have the skills and the qualities and can be used by God in that way, you need to step up and you need to do it. And if you don't, somebody else, everybody else is going to do the same thing. Well, he's got a lot of talents. God could use him. Yeah, but he's not doing anything. I guess we shouldn't do anything. You show up, you do what you're supposed to be doing, you be where you're supposed to be, you faithfully serve God, then the people will come right behind you and do the same thing. Not everybody. Some people are going to fall by the wayside. Nothing you can do about that. But, but a large, a goodly number of the people will follow you if you will be faithful and do what you're supposed to do. But if you're not, the people following behind you, what are they going to do? They're going to go, they're going to go a lot further in the wrong direction than you ever thought about going because there is no servant of the Lord. So then every man's going to do that which is right in his own eyes, and nobody's going to have a clue who to follow. And what you have, instead of an Israel who followed Joshua and followed the Lord because Joshua followed the Lord, you have every man doing that which is right in his own eyes, and it's just a total mess and confusion. And it, and it doesn't have to be that way. All right, everybody have this that wants it? Sarah probably has it memorized already. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel are three men in the Bible that every time I read about them and I, I study them, it's, it's unbelievably convicting. Okay, we're going to break these down. We're going to shift gears just a little bit and break this, this, this down. All right, so I, just real fast. Our three parts are, what's number one? Seven weeks. What's number two? 62 weeks. And number three? One week. This last week is called the 70th week. So you have the 70 weeks, but in English, this I-E-T-H, the 70th week is, is pointing to the single, to, to this one week, the last week. All right. Now, the 70th week is covered in detail by three passages in your Bible. Daniel 9, through 27. 
Matthew 24, 1 through 30, 35. I probably could go even further, but that's, that's all right. And then Revelation. Make sure I get these chapters right. 5 through 19. Chapters 5 through 19. These three cover the same period, Daniel's 70th week. Now, Daniel and Daniel 9 provides a basic outline and, and sort of a timeline. And that, that timeline is crucial. It, it, if you... We've talked about it a number of times in, in this last semester and this semester. If you get the timeline straight in Daniel 9, many of the other parts of, of Matthew 24 and, and also in, in uh, uh, Revelation, it all starts to fall into its place. If you, if you take the time to get the timeline correct, then you can begin. Now, it's not, you're not gonna, it's not gonna fit as neatly as you would like, but you can get pretty close to being accurate in, in terms of the events in Revelation and also the events in Matthew 24, uh, based on the information God gave us in Daniel 9. Jesus further develops that timeline in Matthew 24, and he gives us a bit more depth to the outline, and then John gives us great detail when you go through the book of Revelation. Sometimes detail you wish he didn't give. (laughs) Many, many wild things happen in the book of Revelation. So we're going to break these down, see if I can do this in a way, does everybody have this? Might be helpful to erase it for this next part. And so you got to remember, you have to distinguish, we're not talking, the 70th week is part of the 70 weeks. It's the last week, all right? So you need to compartmentalize those mentally in your head so that when somebody says the 70th week, you know what we're talking about, the last week of the 70 weeks. The one that hasn't come yet. 69 weeks have passed. One week remains. And that's gonna, that's the, the, the tribulation. Okay, so you have first half. All right, first this is um, Daniel 9, I believe. Let me see, is that how I labeled it? Well, I labeled it Daniel's 70th week. This is talking about Daniel chapter 9. First half is... years. And um, at the beginning of the first half, the covenant is made with the the Antichrist. He makes a covenant for how long? Seven years. makes a seven-year covenant with Israel. Then, in the middle of the week, all right, that's, that's at this 3.5, that's at the end of this first 3.5 years, he breaks the covenant. He stops the sacrifice and the oblation. He forces them to to cease. 
Then the last half, 3.5 years. So this takes place literally right, right in the middle of that 3.5 years. When this happens, we start the second 3.5 years. And it begins great tribulation. All right, now, with that, next we have Matthew 24. First half. Doesn't, Matthew doesn't give us a time frame for the first half uh, because it's, it's intermingled. Now, we're going to go through you know, we're to, to finish the class tonight, Lord willing, we'll get through as much of it as we can, but we're going to go through Matthew 24 because it's really important. Now, we don't have time to go through Revelation chapters 5 through 19 at all in this semester, but uh, I think we can get through a goodly portion of Matthew 24, if not all of it. Uh, so we're going to go through that just because it would be helpful. Um, but it, it's it, a, time, a time frame is not given in Matthew, but, a, but certain events are given. Now, the beginning of sorrows, all those events leading up to what Christ said is the beginning of sorrows, that's the outworking of sin. All right, now we're, we're going to talk about that. We're trying to make sense of it as we, as we go. But those things, the existence of those things have nothing to do with the tribulation. They have nothing to do with the second coming of Jesus Christ. But those things during the first half of the tribulation are going to intensify. They're going to intensify greatly. It, it, it's going to become unbearable uh, to, to, to such an intensity. All right, so it's going to be wars, pestilence, famine, false Christs, etc. All right, so all those things that Christ said were, were, were coming. And this is Matthew 24. Four through 14. All right, now in the middle of that, all right, right at verse 15, abomination of desolation spoken by who? Daniel the prophet. That's what Jesus said. He said, then when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, run, <laughs> flee, get out of Judea. But I got to go back. No, don't go get anything. Get out immediately, quickly. You don't have time to get, you don't have time to get out. You don't have time to get anything. Uh, this is verses 15 through 19. Right, then we get to the last half. And Jesus said, when this starts, be tribulation such as has never been seen. And that's Matthew 
24, 20 through, I think, 35, 25. I have listed 20 through 25, but, I mean, you can go further into that chapter if you really wanted to with that. All right, so do do you see how this lines up so far? How did the Antichrist break the covenant in Daniel 9? He puts up the abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke of. And that's the middle, in the midst of the week, in the middle of the week, he, he breaks it. And then they, they go into great tribulation, horrible things start happening. Once that happens, the Antichrist really just narrows down on them. That's according to Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and Daniel 9. And that's exactly what Jesus said is going to happen. He's like, you, you, you haven't seen trouble like what's coming. There's there's nothing like it. All right, now, Revelation 5 through 19. I'd like to put all this together, so I guess I'll I'll sacrifice for you. 5 through 19. First half. Middle. Last half. All right, so the, for the first half, um, the book of Revelation says it's 3.5 years. 3.5 years, and it's trumpets and, it's not vials, trumpets and seals. Seals and trumpets, actually. God begins breaking those seals and and those trumpets start coming out, and that's Revelation 5 through 11. Then in the middle of the week, who can guess what happens? In the middle of the week, the dragon is cast out And then the Antichrist is made manifest, showing himself as God. It all fits what happens in the middle of this week. Then the last half of the week, this is Revelation 12 through 17 in the middle. Then the last half of the week, three and a half years, and it's the vials. And that's Revelation 13 through 18 or 13 through 19, basically till it ends. But do you see how all three of those fit together, and if you were to study each one of those individually and start piecing together their characteristics, it would, it would lay out a nice, clean timeline for you to follow and the events that take place. All right, everybody got this? Let me erase it. We got one more to look at when you're done. You just let me know.
is it, isn't it helpful seeing it spread out like that together and, and get a, a rough idea of how it lays out? I thought it was a blessing. Still, Miss Sarah, are you still writing? No problem. We'll wait for you. Uh huh. Yeah. You don't speak English? Vials. V I A L S. I mean, there's some stuff up there hard to read. That's not one of them. <laughs> I mean, if you said like something in the middle there, I could see that. Or, you know, there's a couple places where it might be hard to read, but that's not one of them. <laughs> well, that's all that matters. <laughs> good, good. Hopefully that helps make some sense of things. And, um, Larkin lays that stuff out real well in his charts. Um, you know, and, and I, I think as you look at it, if, if there are details that I have different than him, those will stand out to you. But otherwise, uh, having a guy like that with those talents, put all that together that way, is, that's a blessing. It's exciting to look at and everybody should study them. Okay, now we're going to look we're going to do a quick comparison of the 70th week to Daniel 2, just so you can get a kind of a visual of what the, you know, of, of how it's laid out, which we, I mean, we've done something similar to it, but we haven't done it connected to the 69 or the 70 weeks, All right? So the, the 70 weeks begin, and this is, this is why, this is where the struggle is with Daniel 7, because the 70 weeks, under what kingdom do the 70 weeks begin? Persia, which is where Daniel 7 picks up, appears to pick up. All right, so Daniel 7 is given when Belshazzar is king, and it says it's talking about kingdoms that shall come, that haven't come yet. And the next kingdom to come is Persia. All right, and so. In terms of the 70 weeks, it begins with Artaxerxes, a Persian king. All right, that, that starts the 70 weeks. And, um, of course, this is the silver 70 weeks begin. So this is our starting point. It's in the Persian Empire. Under Artaxerxes. And then, of course, it runs um, through Grecia. We're not given much significance about Grecia. We, we believe that Alexander is the, is the king because historically it makes sense. Um, but, it, but the 70 weeks just continue running from here before the next real significant thing happens, which is Rome. Now, now of course, under Grecia... It looks like the Antichrist is going to come out of Syria, which was a Grecian, one of those four kingdoms that came out of Grecia. And you'll see that in more detail when we get to chapter 11. Chapter 11 makes that explicitly clear that king is coming out of Syria. And so then that leaves the argument or the question. I mean, for me, it's a question. For some people, it's an argument. Is he a Roman or is he not? 
There's some evidence in the Bible that loosely indicates that he might be, uh, but, but the direct evidence says he's Assyrian, he's from Syria, he's a Jew. Um, you're really taking a stretch to connect it to Rome. Uh, Larkin's suggestion is that maybe Rome, maybe the Romans will take over Syria again, so maybe he'll be a Roman citizen. That's possible, but <laughs> when's the last time Rome conquered anything? <laughs> You know, they just got a new female president, and everybody's losing their mind because she's conservative. Like, oh, it's the end of the world. Italy's, Italy's going to fall apart because they, they have a president now who doesn't want you to mutilate your children in the name of homosexuality and transgenderism. And so, um, so I, I, I personally struggle to make that connection, especially looking at the characteristics of the ten king, ten, the, 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 those final kingdoms, those ten kings, that will come up, which clearly indicates they are not of the seed of men, or they mingle with the seed of men, creating some sort of monstrosity, which, which is what Daniel alludes to or points us to. That's what it looks like is coming. All right, that's Daniel 2 and, and other places in the Bible. So um, I don't see a strong enough connection to him being a Roman citizen, though there's some mild evidence that it's possible. Just not strong enough for me to say, yes, he will be. I can say he'll be Syrian. I can say that with pretty good confidence, uh, especially when you see what we look at in chapter 11. It, it says it explicitly, he's coming out of Syria. So unless he's not Syrian coming out of Syria, which <laughs> could happen, could be, but that makes no sense. So it looks like he's going to be a Syrian Jew who comes out of that country. That's really the only significance of all that we learn about Grisha Nothing really significant happens. We don't even have, we don't even have any, as far as, I, as far as I know, in the Bible, there's no real historical record of what, what happened when Alexander was king to Judah and, and, and Israel and, and all the people who were part of that. We have a ton of information about what happened in Babylon and what happened in Persia and what happened in Rome. The only thing we learn about Grisha is it's split into four kingdoms and the Antichrist is going to come out of one of them and it's Syria or Egypt and according to chapter 11, Daniel chapter 11, it's Syria. Uh, Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. I've been reading the second book and they are saying the reason why the mistaking to be the Antichrist is that Jesus' connections to Syria. Right. Yeah, so when, when Grisha split into four kingdoms, Antiochus Epiphanes was like the, the fifth or sixth king of Syria. And so he was king over the Syrian uh, sector of the old Grecian Empire, um, but, and which, which also doesn't make sense with the prophecy um, because he's like the fifth king or sixth king, some, somewhere along in there, I don't know the exact number, but it's something like that, who comes in the order of things, it just doesn't make sense. Now, he was an, obviously an, an ungodly man. He, he exemplified the characteristics of Antichrist. If you could use a historical figure as a type of the Antichrist, he'd be, he'd be at the top. He'd be one of them. But there were numerous men like that throughout history who specifically hated the Jews and went after them. And so I just don't see Antiochus, and also it violates the, the, time, the, time frame, the, the time frame laid out in Daniel 8, it doesn't fit. You, you violate the, 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 the time frame. You violate, I mean, that's, that's the whole point. We're trying to lay out 
the timing of all this, that if you break that, then, you, then things start falling apart. It doesn't make sense. Antiochus Epiphanes doesn't fit for a number of reasons, though he was definitely an ungodly man who hated the Jews and hated their God. I mean, he went far to desecrate the temple. But a lot of men did. He's not the only one. You know, it, it happened multiple times throughout history. And so uh, they just, he's close enough to the historical time frame that these men need. The whole, I, my, my opinion is the only reason they do it is because they don't know what to do with the 2,300 days. They need the 2,300 days to be passed because it, it's, hard to fi- it's hard to determine where it fits in the future. It doesn't make sense with the timelines that we have. And, and it, it, it seems to violate the timeline, and, and I, I don't know how to reconcile that. But it, it doesn't, but teaching it the way I taught it, I believe, doesn't violate the structure of the chapter and keeps it in its context. And so everything fits except the 2,300 days, and that, uh, <laughs> it's your guess what to do with the 2,300 days. Nobody knows. All right? I just don't think we can point backwards with it. Though it's hard to point forward <laughs> with it. So it's, it's, I, I get the problem. I just don't see Antiochus Epiphanes or Rome being part of the solution, the, the future solution. All right, so, um, so then we, have, we go from Persia to Grecia, uh, and then we get to Rome, and this is when the next significant events happen. Of course, this is the, the brass. Uh, we're not, Rome is not named explicitly. Um, but under Rome, Messiah is cut off. In Daniel 9, the Romans who destroyed the temple, they're called the people of the prince. Now, what some people do, they look at this and they say, well, that means Antichrist is coming out of those people. No, it says those people came from him. It says they, they are his people. It doesn't say that he's coming out of those people. Do you understand the difference? That, that's pretty significant. It says they, it's, it's as though they descended from him, not that he, he's descending out of them. They, they call him the people of the prince. Now, that can be taken one of two ways. The people of the prince, that prince could be Titus, the, the Roman Caesar who, who destroyed the temple. Um, I struggle with that because the very next verse says he. Well, who's the he it's referring to? It's got to be the prince. It's got to be referring back to the prince. Um, now, the Bible does sometimes, in prophetic scripture, there's a sudden shift in the narrative, and you've got to be careful to pick it up. So it could be that this prince is Titus, and, and the people of the prince are his people who went in and destroyed, who destroyed the temple. It's possible. I, I, I don't know that I can say it's Titus. I, I, I think there is a connection between the Antichrist, especially right here. Brass is characteristic of the ten kingdoms as well. And that's, this is where a lot of these guys get locked in. They say, oh, it's a revival of the Roman Empire. It doesn't say that. There, there is, in fact, of each one of these kingdoms, starting with, with uh, Babylon... They all take on each other's characteristics. To, to some extent, this kingdom is an extension of this kingdom, and this kingdom is an extension of this kingdom, and this an extension of this kingdom. They're, they're all connected, and they all absorbed each other when they took over. 
Right? Everybody understand that? You understand what I mean? Right? So, so that, that doesn't merit the idea of saying that, that because of that, that the last, the, these 10 kings that are coming is a revival of Rome. What, what, do you, what do you even mean by that? You mean, Rome, you mean the country Rome, the, the, the political power is going to become a great kingdom again in the future? Because everything points to Syria and Babylon in the book of Revelation and where the Antichrist is coming from. Nothing points to Rome. It just it doesn't make sense to say it's some sort of revival of the Roman Empire, though, though these are all connected. There's a good chance that this last kingdom is also going to be some sort of absorption of, of, of all of these together. It's very possible. Does that make sense? All right, so the point is, though, that, that, that we're getting to is well, you get under the Roman Empire, Messiah is cut off, and when Messiah is cut off, 69 weeks are complete. Also, when Messiah is cut off, the church age begins. So then this major pause comes that is the church age until the rapture. Then when the church is taken away, at some point after that, the Antichrist makes this covenant with Israel and one week remains. All right, does that make sense? Everybody see the timeline and how it all fits together? And so now, everything we just talked about, that all, all that stuff we just put on the board, is right here. This one week over here. Any questions? All right. Matthew 24. All right, with the time that remains, we're going to go through as much of this chapter as we can. Um, I taught this uh, not long ago in Sunday school, um, but it's not recorded or anything, and um, and I don't even know if I got to finish it. I'm not sure, um, but we took some time and went through it uh, because of its it's it's very important, and so Matthew 24 is going to be right here this last week. Now it's going to it's going to start before the tribulation, and, and you, could, you could argue, verses 1 through 14, go all the way back. What did Jesus call the, verses 1 through 14? Who remembers? The beginning of sorrows. Where's the first time the word sorrow is mentioned in the Bible? Genesis 3. The woman in sorrow. You're, you're going you're gonna to give birth. And so you could argue the beginning of sorrows go all the way back to the beginning of sin. That, that's its start. That's what, that's what Jesus is talking about. When he mentions that there, you know, there's going to be famine and pestilence, well, my family and I, you know, just, just last night we're reading about the, the famine that, that the Jews were dealing with and they had to go down into Egypt to, to Joseph to get out of it. So is that a sign of the second coming of Jesus Christ? No, no not at all. <laughs> that's, that's part of the beginning of sorrows. That's just, 
life in a sin-cursed world. All right, so everybody have this? You sure? All right, you got it? <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't think I'm going to write much on the board, but just in case. Brother Keith writes all nice and clean. And actually, Dingado's son, his name is Richard. Is that, is that right? He writes really nice. If only they could be more artistic like me. <laughs> all right. Let's read verses 1 through 14. Matthew 24, verses 1 through 14. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But... The end is not yet. So the the disciples say, Lord, what's the sign of your coming? Okay, here's a list of things that are not the sign of my coming. Wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, famines. These have nothing to do with my coming. Let me tell you that first. All right? So he, he tells them very clearly. Now, what is the end? How do we define the end? Not everybody at once. The end of the tribulation and the second coming of Jesus Christ, always, has nothing to do with the church. The church is long gone. All right? So every time it talks about the end, it's talking about the end of the tribulation and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Every time. All right? What, what did they ask him? What is the sign of thy coming? Right? All right? Now, the rapture is not his coming. The rapture is the rapture. That's, that's our going. <laughs> that's not his coming. He's going to meet us in the clouds. We're going to go up, meet him in the air, and, and we will ever be with the Lord. His second coming, he's coming down and putting his feet on the earth, on the Mount of Olives, probably in Bethany. Amen. All right. <clears throat> All right, so verse 7. For nation shall rise, uh, uh, rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and um, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes and divers places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted uh, and shall kill you and you shall be hated of all nations for my namesake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. I mean, we've never seen a false prophet before. Right? I mean, they put posters of them up all around town. And they're like, prophet so-and-so is coming. All right, so, so I mean, they, there's one every week that Ugandans go and say, oh, I'm poor, I don't have money. And he says, well, give me your money and you'll be rich. Here's my money. You just said you don't have money. What do you mean? Well, he said, if I give it to him, I'll be rich. No, you just lost it. It's gone. He lied to you. 
All right, so false prophets, are, I mean, that's characteristic of this age. Now, I, I, can't, I can't open an internet browser without seeing some female preacher who just endorsed the, the, the LGBTQ community. What is that? It's a false prophet. That's, that's the highest level of false prophet. I mean, that's like the... <laughs> like there's going to be a special place for you in hell. It's, that's really bad. Uh, so it, it, it's amazing to me. All right, now verse 12, And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Uh, um, let's stop there, and then we'll, we'll go into this. All right, now, this chapter is exclusively. Everybody know what the word exclusive means? Like, you don't know what it means, really? Well, I can't give you a definition. I mean, I can describe it. Is that okay? If I said, that chair is exclusively mine, what does that mean? That is my chair. Nobody else sits in it. It's exclusive to me. Right? All right, so that means this chapter is exclusive to one group of people. Jews, also known as Daniel's people. So when someone says... You know, it's talking about people getting saved in Matthew 24. What do you mean by that? Because it, it's not the church. It's not Gentiles. It's not b- people being taken out of their flesh and put into the body of Christ. It's a whole different saved. All right, so th- th- these, these words, saved, salvation, gospel, what, what is the what is what is the word what does the word gospel mean in the Bible? Nope. Anybody else? Hmm? What does the word gospel mean in the Bible? What's the gospel of the kingdom? What's the gospel of God? What's the glorious gospel? So the word gospel, generally speaking, means good news. The context will tell you what that good news is about. So the word gospel does not mean death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel, you hear what I said? The gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel of God, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's the gospel we preach in the church age to lost souls so their souls can be saved, right? The gospel of the kingdom has nothing to do with that. Gospel of the kingdom is the king is at hand. John the Baptist went to the Jews and said, repent and believe the gospel. The king is here. Who is that king? Jesus. Who are his people? Who who are his subjects? The Jews. 
Right? So he went to the Jews. He said, your king is here. Repent. Believe the gospel of the kingdom. And they said, we have no king but Caesar. We don't want him. You take him. In fact, why don't we crucify him? You're all looking at me like I just hit you with a freight train. So just, we'll, we'll, we'll go through it. Just bear with me. Uh, but, but the point is, the chapter is about the Jews, which are Daniel's people, the kingdom of heaven is in view, not the kingdom of God. The gospel of the kingdom, which is directly related to the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of God. This is not the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the, the, the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King, the Messiah is coming. Everybody with me so far? Okay. So this, this chapter is about the Jews. Now, the beginning of sorrows exists in the world now and will intensify in the tribulation period. It, can anybody name a war going on recently? Russia, Russia invaded Ukraine. That means Jesus is coming. <laughs> it has nothing to do with Jesus coming. When have there not been wars and rumors of wars since Genesis 3? All right, so that has nothing to do. People are like, oh, there are wars. There was an earthquake in Thailand. So that means Jesus is coming. There have been earthquakes all over the world for since Genesis 3. The creation has been groaning and, and is angry and wants the Lord to come back. All right, so all that is the beginning of sorrows. That's life. Wars, rumors of wars, all these things that are going on, that's life. These verses provide a point of reference. So look, look, let's read verses 1 and 2 again real fast. Verse 1 and 2, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the, bu- the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See not all these things, verily I say unto you, that there shall, not be, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. They're like, wait, what? <laughs> like, we're, we're trying to show you this beautiful building. He's like, yeah, I'm going to tear it down. All of it? Every stone. <laughs> oh, um, when? <laughs> like, when is this going to happen? Uh, and when are you coming back? All right, so it gives us kind of a, a reference point, And this, this is sometimes called the second sermon on the mount. They're on a mount, and he's given a sermon. See the connection? Got it? Good. All right. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast.